Before we get this started this morning, I'm going to open up with a prayer. Um, and it's a prayer from the Valley Vision. It's a prayer of assurance. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we are loved with everlasting love, clothed in eternal righteousness. May peace flowing like a river, my comforts many and large, my joy and triumph unutterable, my soul lively with the knowledge of salvation, my sense of justification unclouded. I have scarce anything to pray for. Jesus smiles upon my soul as a ray of heaven, and my supplications are swallowed up in praise. How sweet is the glorious doctrine of election when based upon thy word and wrought inwardly within the soul. I bless thee that thou wilt keep the sinner thou hast loved and hast engaged that he will not forsake thee, else I would never get to heaven. I wrong the work of grace in my heart if I deny my new nature and my eternal life. If Jesus were not my righteousness and redemption, I would sink into nethermost hell by my misdoing, shortcomings, unbelief, unlove. If Jesus were not by the power of his spirit, my sanctification, there is no sin I should not commit. Oh, when shall I have his mind? And when shall I be conformed to his image? All the good things of life are less than nothing when compared with his love. And with one glimpse of thy electing favor, all the treasures of a million worlds cannot make me richer, happier, more contented, for his unsearchable riches are mine. One moment of communion with him, one view of his grace is ineffable, inestimable. But, O oh God, I cannot long after thy presence if I did not know the sweetness of it. And such I could not know except by thy spirit in my heart, nor love thee at all unless thou didst elect me, call me, adopt me, save me. And so I bless thee for the covenant of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the years, I've read a good number of books. And out of all the books I've read, only a handful really have made a profound, lasting impact on me. But one of the books that has is a book called The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. I want to read two sections from that book. In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other Christians... The world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. Here, Jesus is stating something else, which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave 
is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians, end quote. How do those two passages make you feel? To me, they're very haunting. And it forces me to really look in the mirror and ask myself, am I a man who's marked by love for the people of God? Or am I finding security? Am I marked simply by theological snobbery? Because you can be very theologically astute and your heart be as dried up as a raisin. The late Francis Schaeffer's right that it's our love for each other that serves as an evidence to the watching world. But it's also an assurance of our salvation to ourselves. It's a means of our spiritual growth when we love one another. In the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7, God's word reads, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. What we're going to see this morning in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is that when you and I are united by our love for God and for each other, we will have assurance and be able to lay hold of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. It is when we are united by our love for God and for each other that we will have assurance and lay hold of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. So let's open our Bibles now to Colossians chapter two, and we're going to read verses one through three, which will be the focus of our morning. Colossians two verses one through three. For I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen my face in the flesh so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In these three verses, there's three things that Paul is deeply desiring for the Colossian believers. If they are going to stand firm and refute the false teachings that are infiltrating the church here. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is Paul saying, be encouraged. We see this in verses one and two, the first half of two. Now, before we, we start unpacking that, it's important to address. There's three groups of people in verse, one, in verse one. We have the Colossians, we have the Laodiceans, and we have those who Paul has not seen yet in the flesh. So the Colossians, that's the people Paul's writing to here, right? That's the church that we saw had been started by Epaphras. They're battling these false teachers. But then there's Laodicea. And Laodicea is the city that's closest to Colossae. It's about nine to 12 miles away. It had a really close relationship with the church in, uh, in Colossae. And it's the chief city of, uh, of Phrygia that's in the Roman province of Asia. 
And those he has not seen to face to face, it's the surrounding communities, surrounding churches. These are the people that Paul has specifically in mind when he's writing this. And so this call to be of encouragement is for those churches, but because the word of God is for all people at all times and in all places, it's a word for us as well, by extension. So the first thing I want us to see here is, as we're looking at this call to encouragement, is that Paul has a struggle going on, which we've been dealing with in chapter one. He says, for I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf. He's reiterating what we saw last week in verse 29, that his heart is just fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. And so he's struggling on behalf of all of them. Again, Paul is a, an apostle of repetition, right? He wants to really make sure you get it, that you don't forget halfway through his letter. He's saying so much, it's easy to forget what he had said. And so he repeats himself often. Here he repeats again about this struggle, this striving. He really wants to know, you, Colossians, you, Laodiceans, specifically you, I'm holding nothing back on your behalf, I'm giving everything I can to see you grow in Christ and be protected from the false doctrines that these teachers are trying to bring to you. But he also says those I've not seen face to face, right? So it also reminds us Paul's concern is also for the universal church, for the church beyond where his feet will will walk, where his letters will reach. Paul's a local churchman, but he's also a churchman globally. As I thought about how he struck, he talks about struggling and striving, and you see it in his other letters that we're going to see in a moment. We see that Paul carried believers in his heart. He carried them in his heart. Wherever he was, the Colossians, the Laodiceans, they were there. It was as if Paul was carrying them in his heart as a mother carries a newborn in her arms. Paul carried the church in his heart as a soldier carries the smile of his wife while he's at war. They were precious to him. He cares deeply for the church. Listen to how he speaks in Romans chapter 1, verse 11. Romans chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, and that you may be strengthened. He longs to see him. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you'd be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. Or Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Galatians 4.19. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I'm always struck by the fact that Paul was never a father in the biological sense. But he loved the people of the church as if they were his very own children. They were everything to him. It's interesting, 
in the entire 13 letters Paul writes, I never hear anything about who his dad was, who his mother was. But I hear about what the, how the church was family for him, how Timothy was a son for him. You go to the end of Romans, you see how personally and intimately he refers to each person that was linked with him in ministry. And so even there, I'm, I'm forced to pause and ask myself, do I love God's people in this way? Not, not the institution church, not simply the services, not the Bible studies, not the groups, not the, the people. Do I love the people this way? And I, I pray that God would, would work that in my heart and that he would work that in your hearts. Because everything Paul is going to say flows from that kind of heart. If Paul did not have a heart like that for the people, everything he's saying right now would ring hollow. But we know that Paul truly carries them in his heart. And so the Colossians are going to be comforted and know they are loved as Paul continues to deliver these words. So he says, For I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are allowed to see and those who have not seen my face in the flesh so that their hearts may be encouraged. You see, Paul also understands something here. He says, who have not also those who have not seen my face in the flesh. Some people look at that like, man, Paul, like that sounds a little arrogant. Like you really think they're going to be better off if they see you. Some commentators have said, some liberal commentators have said that Paul was thinking very highly of himself. They're missing the point entirely. See, Paul recognized that he had been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel, especially to the Gentiles. Paul knows he is God's chosen instrument. Therefore, Paul rightly knows that God uses certain people at certain times to start movements. As this church, the New Testament church is beginning, Paul recognizes God has called me to this purpose. And because it is the Lord Christ who has called Paul, he is desperately wanting to make sure that he is found faithful. God's call, it's God's calling on his life. And so he struggles for the church and he desires to see them in the face to face. And he understands there are certain things that a letter is not going to be able to communicate. I can write these letters, but it were better if I was there with you in person. It were better there if we were breaking bread together, praying together, walking. I was unpacking God's word with you. We have to understand that just especially the last, what, 20 something months. We understand even as good as technology is being on zoom is not the same thing as being face to face. Paul saying, I can't make it there face to face, but I still want to encourage you. He understands also that, He's a man that's been put in a position of authority. And so he has some influence. And so he wants to make sure that this is used for the building up of people, for the building up in Christ, not for himself. It's completely opposite of what these commentators are saying. Paul knows that the people need to be strengthened, that he's been filled by the Holy Spirit to do just that. He goes on and he wants them to be encouraged Because Paul knows something that I think the Colossian church maybe wasn't realizing as much as they should. He understood the power, presence, and pull that these false teachers had. 
The church in Colossae, maybe they don't understand the threat that these false teachers are posing and just how serious it is. But Paul does. Paul does not make the mistake of not taking the threat seriously. He knows that if he doesn't struggle to drive away the wolves, the sheep are going to be devoured. That's a pretty important word for us because there's a lot of false teaching trying to creep its way into the church right now. Leaders, uh, certain teachers and leaders that have been trusted for years seem to be compromising. Certain organizations and institutions seem to be adopting worldly ideologies. And the vast majority of people that are followers of Christ do not see just how damning these things are. But they are. I'll go right out and say it. Churches that are so quick to want to adopt so much of the social justice movement. That's a false gospel. No different than what the Colossians were teaching. The false teachers in Colossae were teaching. When Black Lives Matter came marching through. If you were to just look at the organization, you would see that it is undermining everything that is biblical. The LGBTQ push in our culture. And how we walk through that and people saying, well. You know, we're just, we want to be loving and supportive, not affirming, but loving and supportive. And then therefore we allow certain people to identify according to their sexual orientation. I'm a gay Christian. Those are Trojan horses. And it takes strong men and women of God, both in leadership and just in the pews to drive away those wolves. And this is what Paul's saying. He needs to be encouraged. This is what he's trying to do. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, how does that deal with encouragement? I want to spend a moment here because it is the word he says there. I want their hearts to be encouraged. But encouragement, the word encouraged isn't, doesn't mean what we think it means in the way it's used today. Literally, the word means to come along so, alongside someone. It has the idea of helping a person in the midst of a difficult situation. It's got a broad usage. It can mean to urge, to exhort, to strengthen, or to console. Context has to determine a lot here. And the way Paul's using it here, he's really talking in that sense of exhorting, strengthening. Paul wants to strengthen the church in Colossae. You know, we hear the word encourage, and it's used all the time in churches. I want to be an encourager. I want to be encouraging. But really what they mean by encouraging is, hey, I want to be the guy or the woman who lifts somebody's spirits, who brings cheerfulness into the room. I want to give an uplifting word. But that's not what encouragement means. That's not what exhorting means. Interestingly, English language didn't always abuse this word. So if you were to go look at the Webster's 1828 dictionary, they define encouragement as this, to give courage to, to give or increase confidence of success, to inspire with courage, spirit, or strength of mind, to embolden. That's what it has always meant to be, to encourage someone. So it would steal into their spine. 
to strengthen them, to help them stand firm, to help the knees stop shaking and knocking. Did a little bit of study here, and the word itself even has old French roots. Encora here would be the French word. I hope I pronounced that right. If not, I'm sure I'll be corrected after service. Um, <laughs> the first part of that word, the en part, the n, it means to put into. The second half of that word was coraje, which means heart or seat of emotions. And we know that the human heart is often used as a symbol of strength or valor. And so it's literally to put strength, to put valor into the heart, to make an individual strong. And so Paul is saying, so that their hearts may be strengthened when he says encouraged. And it says into the heart, that's important, into the deepest part of your being. That's not how the word is being used today, but that is how Paul meant it. Paul knew that they would have to be strengthened in heart if they were to stand against the false teachers and hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts, that's the wellspring of our spiritual life. It's where our motives, our attitudes, our affections, our thinking, our will comes from, the heart. If the heart is not strengthened, we will be weak on all fronts. But if the heart is strengthened, we can remain steadfast in all circumstances. And so Paul wants to encourage the heart. A good example of this is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, 1 reads, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the word, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling in which you've been called. We have, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. For a beautiful passage, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28. Deuteronomy 3, 28. But command Joshua and strengthen and encourage him, for he shall go across as the, at the head of his people, and he will cause them to inherit the land which you will see. Paul wants the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and all others to be strong, to be strengthened, emboldened. That's encouragement. That's what he's struggling for. As I think about what that means for us, let's not forget it hurts to care for others. It hurts to care for other people. It's costly to build up other people in Christ. But we must do it. We have to struggle as Paul is struggling on behalf of the saints, and we must struggle so that they would be strengthened. We're called to be encouragers, but that doesn't mean cheerleaders. By encouragers, we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God to pour strength, to pour courage into the hearts of our brothers and sisters into Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first call, the first point here for Paul is to be encouraged. 
Now, secondly, you see, we see he's calling them to be united. Look at, let's look at chapter two again, verse two. Having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding. Paul has a specific goal in mind here. His encouragement, his strengthening has a specific purpose, and it is for them to be united in love. So he says here, held together. It's the idea of knitting something together, taking two things and making them one. In Ephesians chapter 4, 16, we see this language is picked up talking about the imagery of the human body. Ephesians 4, 16 says, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of the, in each individual part, causes for the growth of the body, for the building up of itself in love. Paul is talking about a connectedness here that we should have. But what is it that's holding them together? It says held together in love. Now that sounds great. Held together in love. Of course, everybody loves love. Everybody wants to be loved. Hallmark movies are promoting love like crazy this month. But this is a specific type of love. We're being held together by a specific type of love. It's the love of Christ that has been applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. The word for love here in the original language is the Greek word agape. See, Greek language has different words for different types of love. There was familial love. There was romantic love. And then there is this love, agape love. And this is the word that is typically used to describe God's love toward us. It's a love that is sacrificial and unconditional. It's a love that doesn't change based on emotions or circumstances. It is a fixed and decisive love. Let me read you some passages here that show you how this word is used. The first comes from Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 5. And hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Or lastly, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This divine, supernatural, heavenly love is the love that should be knitting us together, 
holding us together, uniting us. It's not our common interests that unite us. It's not our hobbies that unite us. It's not our socioeconomic status that unite us. The melanin count in our skin, our ethnic backgrounds, our careers, the stages of life that we're at, none of that is what is holding us together, knitting us together, uniting us. It is the love of God that has been poured into our hearts that is to hold us together. Later on in Colossians chapter 3, 14, Paul says, above all things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The love, this is a love that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. It is a love that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Every single person who's trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And if the Spirit of God is in you, then that divine love is there. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Well, first, I'm sorry, chapter four, verses seven and eight. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. You can look at verse 11 too. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It's not an optional thing. We are to be held together in love. In the book of Galatians chapter five, we see that one of the fruit, that the fruit of the spirit is love because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of love. If the spirit of God is in you because you have been born again, then you are commanded to love in this manner. Paul knows that false teachers are trying to slither their way into the church. They're proclaiming these false doctrines and that division as a result is a very real possibility. False teachers always want to divide God's people. Paul's saying, as they're trying to pull you apart, lock arms. Become a chain that can't be pulled apart. Be held together in divine love, the love of God, so that when they come pulling, you guys are held firm. You know, so often love runs cold among God's people because of we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. When we take our eyes off of Christ, love will always run cold. When we put our eyes on false teaching, love will run cold. When we put our eyes on worldly concerns, love will run cold. But when we fix our eyes on Christ, that love in us will become a fire. When love, run cold, when love runs cold in a church, a church becomes divided and disjointed. Paul knows that this is the danger that is being posed. And so he's calling the Colossians and by us by extension to contend, to fight, to struggle for the unity of love that can only come from Christ through the Holy Spirit. And as they 
are being held together in this love from God and love of God, some things begin to happen. They begin to grow in Christ. Look at verse two again. So that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding. This full assurance, it means to be fully persuaded, to have a deep and settled conviction. It's an assurance of faith. It's an assurance of uh, uh, that we are in Christ. And this assurance is always going to come from knowing the truth of God's word and living it out. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I'd have students all the time asking, Alex, I don't know if I'm a Christian. How do I know? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, a real simple test would be, are you growing in your knowledge of God through his word? And are you trying to live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit? Of course, you're going to have no assurance of faith if you're in your Bible once or twice a week. Why would you? Why would you have assurance of faith if you're living like a devil? Of course you wouldn't. You shouldn't. That'd be a false assurance. I had a couple, a young couple that were dating in the youth group, and they were talking about, it's just so hard to get in our Bibles. And it is. I'm not trying to minimize that, but they were giving all these reasons why they weren't in their Bibles and all this why, they were, why it was so hard to live it out. But this couple, they've been dating for a couple of years. They had every desire to get married when they went to college. I said, great. So I want you guys just to talk once a week for the next month. And then let's come back in a month and tell me about the assurance of your relationship. How strong is it? They thought that was crazy. Right? They start thinking, well, that person's not that into me. I don't know if we're going to make it. And Right, right, because there's no communication happening. There's no communion. There's no, there's no, you know, walking through life together. But somehow we think that we're going to have a sure, true assurance of faith when we don't know the Word of God, when we're not spending time in the Word of God, and when we're not seeking to live out the Word of God. It's impossible. Doubts will always spring up in the absence of devotion. Doubts will always spring up in the absence of devotion. If you're not devoting yourself to the Lord, then you're going to have all types of doubts of faith. And you know what? Those doubts are gifts of God. There are warnings that he's giving. The problem becomes when you no longer care if you have assurance of salvation. When you stop wondering, man, am I, am I, am I in Christ? When you stop caring about that because you've drifted so far, that's the scariest place to be. If God is still pricking your conscience with doubts of your assurance and revealing to you that you are not availing yourself to the means of grace and that you are not living it out, praise be to God, that's him trying to get your attention. God wants us to have assurance of salvation. Assurance is something God desire, tells us we should have. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want us sitting there, wringing our hands, biting our nails, wondering when it's all said and done and we die if we're going to get in. That is not what the Lord wants. The Lord wants you to have a settled conviction of peace, a full assurance, as Paul says here. That you are in. 
that you are in Christ. This lack of assurance comes from a disobedience. Lack of assurance is the, is the fruit of disobedience and biblical illiteracy. First Corinthians chapter 2, 14. <clears throat> But a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are not because they are spiritually examined. When you sit down with the word of God, you just like, ah, oh, this is too hard. Is there no struggle to understand? Is there no desire to understand? Beloved, it may be because you're not born again. You may not be a Christian. You may not have a new heart. If when you sit down to the word of God day after day and you're like, eh, it doesn't really do anything for me. It's too hard to understand. I'm just going to go do something else. If that becomes the repetitive pattern of your life, then I encourage you to take a step back and ask yourself, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Somebody who professes to walk with Christ and yet continuously has no desire to to be with christ in his word when they when they come across things they don't understand to seek them out to find understanding to put them into practice and try to live it no matter how difficult the reality is you may not have assurance of faith because you have no true saving faith as hard as that is to understand it's better to be honest so that you can get that worked out in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. You know, you can understand a lot of stuff in the, in the Bible if you got a, if you got a sharp little brain in there. But knowledge alone doesn't mean anything because we're seeing here, you had also assurance comes from living the life that Christ has called us to live. So also take inventory of how you live. Take inventory. If you would be, I'll say this because of people respond to authority differently, right? But for the most part, the people are wanting to put their best foot forward, right? If an authority figures in the room to some degree. I remember hearing one of my professors say in seminary, if what you do, you wouldn't do if your pastor was in the room, then you probably shouldn't be doing it, right? Same idea like the kids, right? The way the kids joke with their friends, but it changes completely if mom and dad walk in the room. Right, like if we wouldn't do what we would do, if most importantly, if Christ was in front of us, then we shouldn't be doing it. And then if you take inventory of your life and you say, "Wow, like that's a substantial part of my life," then you need, you need we got work to do because there will be no assurance when there's constant disobedience. Now, Paul describes this assurance in an amazing way. Look at verse two again. The wealth of the full assurance. 
This that word wealth, it means it means abundance, richness, treasure. It's being it's typically used for having material prosperity beyond what the average person in a society has. Paul is saying here to those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that he wants you to know and experience the abundant richness that comes when you have assurance of who you are and what you have by faith in Christ. That assurance is rich. It's treasure. It's overflowing. It's abundant. And he wants you to know it, but also experience it. Right? That's two different things. We can know that we have assurance of salvation that we should, but experience it, resting in it. That's a completely different thing. When you know that you are held in the hand of God by faith in Christ, guess what? Confession becomes sweet. Repentance becomes quick. Paul is saying your assurance, it's wealth. He goes on, the full assurance of understanding. To understand, he wants you to, to comprehend, right? This is understanding here. It's, it's the way the word is used. It's more than simply the accumulation of factual data. To understand means you are able to take that knowledge base, those things you're learning, and you're able to connect them together to see how they all relate to each other. That's a good example would be, what is, the, what is Jesus taking upon flesh really? Like I can understand it, but what does that really mean for me today? How does that impact the way I live that Christ took upon flesh? Right? That's understanding when you're able to start putting these things together. We're going to see in home, there are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can understand that up here, but understanding is when you're able to put it together and say, got it. Now I know what this demands of me and how to live. Paul wants us to have an assurance that leads to understanding. That leads to start, we start putting things together in this life. We start learning how to walk and navigate through this life. And then he goes on to the full knowledge of God's mystery. Full knowledge to this complete knowledge, the thorough knowledge. So Greek is an interesting language because there's multiple words that our English only can render by one word. We saw that with love, but knowledge is another one. The word here is a word called epignosis. It's different from another word for knowledge, which is just gnosis. This word used for full knowledge isn't just intellectual understanding, but it also means a submission of the heart to what it demands, a conformity. A full, complete knowledge is not just what it is, but what it demands. And we submit unto it. And so he says here, I want you to have a full assurance, an understanding, and a knowledge that leads to submission. And submission to what? To, the mystery, to God's mystery, which is Christ. We looked at that a few weeks ago in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. 
Church, think about this. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the purpose, person, and wisdom of God are revealed. The purpose, person, and wisdom of God are revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So understanding, we start putting that together. Oh, full knowledge. Okay, I got to submit. This is what it demands of me. Now, the truth that Paul is unpacking here by the Holy, the Holy Spirit guiding him as he writes is that the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ should have an increasing, an ever-increasing assured knowledge of the riches that they have in him. You should have an ever-increasing assured knowledge of the riches that are in Christ and made available to you. Ephesians 1, 3 says that all the, tri- all the riches in the heavenly places have been given to you. Notice here. Jesus is not a clue. He is the mystery. He's not a clue to unlock the mystery. Jesus is the mystery himself. Jesus is the very thing that people sought to understand. There is no other way. Jesus alone is the mystery. Exclusively in Christ and fully unfolded in Christ is the mystery. And all of this is directly connected to our love for God and love for one another. Because our understanding is simply not an exercise in the mind, but it's also an expression of the heart. So a full knowledge of these things leads to a love for one another. Because you and I experience Christ through the giving and receiving of love among God's people. There is an aspect of who the Lord Jesus Christ is that is experienced when brothers and sisters in the body of Christ love one another truly. So it's connections there because what we believe will shape how we live. Truth and love cannot be separated. Both are needed. It's been rightly said that love without truth is sentimentality. But truth without love is a hammer of judgment. Each one of us will lean one way over the other. I'm t- I've, I've, over the years, I've been more of a hammer. But we need both. Our ability to love is directly connected to the settled conviction that we have that Jesus is who he says he is. He's accomplished what he said he'll accomplish and he will do what he said he will do. Let me repeat that. Our ability to love is directly connected to the conviction that Jesus is who he says he is, has accomplished what he said he would accomplish, and will do what he said he'll do. That's what Paul is driving at here with the wealth of the full assurance of understanding. Far too often we think we need deeper theological knowledge, but that really isn't true. When we grow in our understanding and assurance, it must show itself in love. Here's the dangerous thing. The more you learn of the word of God, the more doctrine you learn, the greater degrees of love you should have. So if your doctrine is far exceeding your love, maybe you need to dial it down a little bit on your study and work a little bit more on the application. This brings us to our last point. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm going to be brief here because if not, we would be here till our evening service starts. The point here is simply be excavating. Be excavating. Christ is sufficient, church. In whom, means Jesus, are hidden, meaning concealed, all the treasures. The false teachers were saying that there was a secret knowledge outside of Christ that people needed. Paul is saying, uh-uh, that's not true. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All, without exception, none lacking. There is no treasure somewhere else. That word treasures is interesting because it's actually talking about like a place where you keep valuables. So maybe a treasure chest. He is the fullness of the one that's spoken of in Isaiah chapter 11. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It's a beautiful connection. Isaiah 11, 2. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. That's pointing to our Lord. It is in him that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. You know, we've looked at wisdom in previous messages. And so again, I'll just restate the definition. Wisdom is the spirit-empowered ability to make the most God-honoring decision in any given situation. And that wisdom is only available to those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who does not have Christ will not have wisdom. And then he says knowledge, which is the understanding of truth, biblical truth. It means that you are in Christ is everything we need to know about our faith. And in Christ is everything we need to know to live a life of faith. See, the natural man, the unborn individual, can have knowledge about spiritual matters, but it profits nothing. It just condemns them all the more because the spirit of wisdom is not in them. It's like a man who's got a full pantry, but he still starves to death because he doesn't know how to cook. That's what the natural man who has lots of knowledge of spiritual matters, but isn't born again. You see, in Christ is everything we need. We don't need to add anything to him. He has everything in himself that we need to have a God-pleasing life. Jesus is a well that never runs dry. Christ is both the key that unlocks the treasure chest and he's the treasure himself. Wisdom isn't simply hidden in Jesus. Jesus is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 are amazing because so much of what we read in, the, in verses 2 and 3 in Colossians, those same words are repeated in Proverbs 2, 1 through 8. Let me just read them. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you to make your ear pay attention to wisdom, incline your heart to discernment, for if you call out for understanding, give your voice for discernment. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. And Yahweh gives wisdom. 
From his mouth come knowledge and discernment. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, a shield to those who walk in integrity, to guard the paths of justice and to keep the way of his holy ones. Let me say this. The book of Proverbs, you can say, is a manual on how to live the Christ-centered life. Jesus is the wisdom that Proverbs talks about. It shows us how Christ lived because he embodied all of that. Solomon, who was said to be the wisest of all men, did not have the wisdom that Christ has. The wisdom Solomon had was the wisdom of Christ given to him in measure. Let me put it this way. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge means that everything of importance is Christological. Everything that's important is Christological. Everything finds its foundation in Christ. Everything. So what does that mean for us? All that we need to know or ever might want to know about God must be understood and answered in relation to Jesus. Everything you might want to know about God must be understood and answered in relation to Christ. He's the treasure chest. And so that question is, what is your treasure? What are you treasuring? Is your treasure in Christ or in the things of the world? Is your treasure in the kingdom of God or the city of man? Is your treasure in the eternal or the temporary? Is your treasure in the light or in the darkness? What you and I need most of all is a deeper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to call all of you to put away all the books about Jesus and actually pick up his word. Seek to know him through his word. You know, when you hear the word treasure, what do people typically think about treasure, right? You think that treasure is something you search and you dig for. I think about the old pirates and things like that. So why not do the same when it comes to Christ? Why not embark on the greatest treasure hunt of your life? Why not start digging in right here for all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Church, Bible study alone is not going to unlock the treasure chest that is Christ. The treasure chest that is Christ is opened by the key of love for God and love for each other that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's when you and I are united by our love for God and love for each other that we'll have assurance and we will be able to lay hold of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We come before you this morning, Lord, confessing that our treasure is so often elsewhere. So, Father, I ask now that you would do an amazing work by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would first unite us, Lord, to love you and love each other. And as we do so, we will experience the full assurance 
that comes from understanding who you are, Lord Jesus. And what it means to walk with you. And as we love you and we love each other and we dig into your word, we will begin to excavate, draw out all of these treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in you. We are wealthier than we realize. We are like men and women sitting under an oil field and don't even know it. You've given us all the riches in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, open our eyes that we would see the amazing wealth that you have given to us. Cut away our desire to seek wisdom and knowledge in the world. Drive us deeper and deeper and deeper into your son. King Jesus, we come before you recognizing that you are the greatest treasure. That in you, any question we may ever have or do have about what, who you are, God, is answered. That because in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Lord Jesus, you are how we understand reality, how we navigate the day to day. When Monday begins and we go to the workplace or we begin our day at home, uh, schooling children, whatever it may be, and all of those questions and concerns and decisions have to be made, they must be made in relation to you, Jesus, because in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so root us deeply in your word and hold us together by your divine love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.